everybody i am ashwin i'm raj and i'm eddie this is blood cancer talks this is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management today we are excited to talk about the management of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria also called pnh we have an expert dr robert brodsky who is the director of the division of hematology and professor of medicine at johns hopkins he is also 2023 american society of hematology president dr brodsky thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your time before we start can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus for our listeners sure um so oh, it's a pleasure to be here so I have been interested in bone marrow failure states for for a long time and uh my my clinical interests uh relate to bone marrow failure states and also complement uh, mediated disorders uh such as PNH and and uh other other complementopathies that we we often refer to them. Um I run a research lab that also studies uh complement and and the other a uh, major uh, interest of mine over the years has been uh the use of um cyclophosphamide to originally get rid of autoimmunity and ultimately alloimmunity and uh opening the door for haploidentical bone marrow transplants for bone marrow failure states and sickle cell disease so dr brodsky in your clinic you only exclude exclusively see bone marrow failure disorders Now my clinic is pretty broad. I I mean it's it's um I've had to narrow it a little bit this year just because of the time constraints for from from ash. But um I even see some hematologic malignancies less and less these days just because I don't have time. Uh but uh most of it is complement mediated disorders. So that can include PNH, that can include atypical HUS that can include antiphospholipid antibody syndromes um help syndrome i i also see uh, a lot of aplastic anemia um congenital bone marrow failures etc we're looking forward to talk uh, a lot about complement for the best part of the hour but we did want to ask you what your motivation for wanting to become ash president and what your sort of vision for the year looks like yeah so <laughs> Uh I never had it uh uh I I never envisioned being ash president uh so but it it kind of evolved I mean I got involved in ash a little uh, probably over 10 years ago as as the chair of the bone marrow failure uh, uh study section uh, well even before that uh I I I got an ash scholar award from ash uh when I was uh a junior faculty is that that played a big role uh, that really helped me uh, jump start my career. So so I realized that Ash was doing wonderful things and 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 I figured if I was going to get into administration type stuff I would rather do that and keep it to hematology than to be you know a cancer center director or or a head of medicine. I just had never had an interest to do that. I wanted to keep everything related to hematology and and uh and my and my research rather than and and you know i i i saw that ash was a very global organization and that's really i just came back from vietnam for the for the highlights of ash it was just eye opening to see uh, how 
interested people from all over the world who can't get to the ash meeting were and how knowledgeable these people were i, I met with some of the fellows there uh, they were just amazing, and they were so appreciative of, of Ash coming to the parts of the world that they really can't get uh, the education. So so it, it's just a wonderful organization. It just does a lot of uh, good things. I mean, getting these Ash-focused fellowships uh, where people can train in, in benign and malignant hematology and not do solid tumor, um, I, I think is really important. I mean, why should you... Uh, train in, in a field where where seventy percent of what you see is not what you're going to be doing, and and I would say on the flip side, you know, with with uh, people who want to do oncology, you know, solid tumor oncology, why should they have to manage sickle cell and TMAs and PNH and aplastic anemia if they want to do lung cancer? I mean, it just makes no sense. So I think getting uh, we're not separating the fields, we're separating the training, so so that people can train in what they want to do. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Brodsky. So let us jump right in. Um, we will start with a case and you can walk us through how you would approach this patient and we can discuss the data and questions as we go. I think first, let's start with this case I saw in the clinic. Uh, this is a 66-year-old female with no significant past medical history who presented with symptoms of sore throat, fatigue, easy bruising and dyspnea on exertion. Her blood count showed a white count of 1.8, hemoglobin of 6.1 and a platelets of 50. She underwent a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy to further evaluate this pancytopenia which showed markedly hypocellular marrow with a cellularity of 5 to 10 percent with the rare hematopoietic elements. No abnormal blasts or lymphocytes are detected by flow. Um, just a mild erythroid atypia. Cytogenetics were normal. Myeloid NGS panel showed a ASXL1 mutation with a variant allele frequency of 5%. We also sent for flow for PNH, which showed a significant population of monocytes with GPI anchor loss, which is 52%, and granulocytes with 60%. And gating on erythrocytes by CD45, CD59, and glycophorin A detected 80% type 1, 3% type 2, and 17% type 3. So with this, now she was diagnosed with aplastic anemia and PNH overlap. Um, so for our audience, can you first give us a 10,000 foot view of what is PNH and why the name PNH? And another thing I sometimes struggle is how do you explain this to a patient? Great. Okay. Um, can I ask one more question? Did you have sure. a tick, tick count and an LDH? LDH was done. It was in 650. Okay. And the reticulocyte count? I do not have reticulocyte count right now okay. in front of me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is the most confusing um, area that I that I get the most calls on. I'm glad you uh, presented this case. It's the aplastic anemia PNH overlap. Um, 
I think everyone knows how to treat aplastic anemia, although that's changed right now. And I, I think you're going to see immunosuppression go away. Um, I, I think most people know how to use uh, complement inhibitors for classical hematology, and that makes sense. But this group here, and, and what I ask myself is what is causing the patient a problem? And yes, you presented a, a case where there's this big PNH clone, but that's not the problem here. And that's why I asked for the retic count. I bet the retic count's low. The problem here is bone marrow failure. So you need to address your problem at the bone marrow failure. That PNH clone is only slightly more relevant than that 5% ASXL1 NGS. I mean, you're not you're not focusing your therapy on that, and you didn't even pick up the P, the pig A mutation on your NGS panel. Isn't that scary? So, <laughs> so, um, so, so this is a case where I would focus my therapy on aplastic anemia, but I would also recognize that if I just improve hematopoiesis with immunosuppressive therapy that PNH clone is probably gonna come out later. Not guaranteed, but probably gonna come out later. So that's, that's what I'm thinking. Now you asked, what's PNH? PNH is, is, is a clonal hematopoietic stem cell disorder. It's caused by a mutation in an X-linked gene called PIG-A. And the product of that gene uh, is responsible for the it's one of seven uh, proteins responsible for the first step in the biosynthesis of GPI anchor proteins. GPI anchor proteins, uh, GPI is a moiety that anchors a whole class of proteins to the cell surface. And two of the most important ones uh, from the standpoint of the disease are CD55, which controls the C3 and C5 convertases, and CD59, which controls terminal complement. And it's the reason these patients have a hemolytic anemia when they have a large clone. Um, the, the cell, our, our cells are constantly being tested uh, through the alternative pathway with C3B. And if we don't have a way of clearing it, uh, the cells will lyse. And it only takes one membrane attack complex to land on a red cell to lyse it. So if you're missing CD55 and 59, especially 59, your red cells are going to lyse, and that's why you get this hemoglobinuria. The other important feature about PNH, it is one of the strongest prothrombotic disorders around. And I think a lot of people have forgotten now uh, that uh, the leading cause of death from this disease was thrombosis. And that happened in about 40% of patients and once patients started to clot, you really couldn't stop it. Uh, sure, you would put them on anticoagulation, but you would treat the acute clot, but they would continue to have clotting, and that's what would kill them in spite of anticoagulation. Uh, once the complement inhibitors came into play, uh, you no longer had the, the, the risk. As a matter of fact, I consider it a a provoked event uh, now, and I don't keep people on long-term anticoagulation with complement inhibitors. I just anticoagulate them for three, four months, 
and then stop it as long as they're well controlled on a complement inhibitor. But this is an overlap. And here, your problem is aplastic anemia. This is aplastic anemia, capital AA, with PNH, small PNH. Thanks, Dr. Brodsky. I think one question that patients sometimes ask is whether PNH is considered a cancer. How do you express that? Given that this is a clonal process, um, so sometimes I struggle to explain whether this is a, a malignancy or not. So I, I would say no, it's clonal. So, so to me, cancer is unregulated clonal growth. Probably the simplest definition of, of cancer is unregulated clonal growth. This is clonal growth. It's regulated. So, you know, but, you know, kind of like LGL, do you consider that a cancer? Uh, you know, that's, that's clonal growth. That's a clonal autoimmune disease. Uh, you know, someone who has a, a CalR mutation, you know, who, who, you know, it's clonal disorder, uh, eventually it might, you know, turn into a, a, a cancer. Uh, but this is, it's, it's more like a, you know, a mole is, is clonal, right? You know, a chip, is is clonal mgus you know clonal so so you know where you where you draw the line of what, what's cancer and what's you know clonal I, I yeah i would probably say this is not a cancer in what we traditionally think of okay okay one other the patients ask this question is it inherited or is it acquired or is it always acquired the PNH is always acquired. It's the interesting thing is there's over 30 genes involved in GP anchor biosynthesis. So back many, many years before you guys were in, 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 in uh, medicine, we used to think it probably wasn't going to be just one gene that causes PNH. Um, and with rare exception, uh, that it, it, it is, it is one gene. And the reason for that is pig A is on the X chromosome. And, uh, because this is an acquired disorder, it just takes a single mutation, uh, to, to knock out pig A function in males and, and in females, because females, are, uh, they're, uh, through lionization, uh, there's only really one active, uh, X chromosome. So it, it, you know, it, it affects males and females equally, and it just takes a single hit. All the other genes involved in gene anchor biosynthesis are on autosome. So it would take, um, you know, an inherited plus a, you know, and, and that's that's happened in a, in a gene called PIG-T. Uh, but that's super, super rare. There's probably not 10 cases in the world. Now, <laughs> just a, a quick tangent there. We have described germline pig A mutations. That doesn't cause PNH. That causes a disorder of intellectual disability and seizures. And these are all hypomorphs. Um, these are patients that have a, a, a leaky stop codon usually. Uh, so they ex express some GP anchor protein deficiency. Because if you have uh, a germline pig A mutation that knocks out all function, it's embryonic lethal. You can't uh, get past the early stages of development. But if you have a small amount of GP anchor proteins, you, you can, and you, you develop uh, a, a very, uh, you know, severe neurologic disease that is 
uh, most children die within, you know, a couple couple years to a decade. One other, you know, paradox of PNH is, you know, the PNH stem cell produces uh, this red red blood cell, which does not have uh, CD fifty five and CD fifty nine anchor proteins. Um, but why does the clone grow in size despite it's being producing red blood cells which are hemolyzed all the time? Yeah, great question. As a matter of fact, that's what got me into the lab. Uh, when I was a fellow, um, and, and this is just good general advice for, for trainees. I like to teach residents and fellows to what I call read backwards. And what I mean by that is, especially today, medical education is just absorbing information and recognizing patterns. And you really don't get a chance to think. And so so when you read a paper or when you go to a lecture, rather than just taking at face value what is in up to date or what is in you know, a, a lecture or, or, or a paper, try to read the paper for where the holes are in the field. What doesn't make sense? What don't you understand? Uh, because that's where the research questions are. And that came up over and over again. How do you have a clone that is more vulnerable to complement mediated destruction achieve clonal dominance? doesn't make sense that's what i wanted to study and uh so there's there's a couple ways that 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 can happen so you all know about clonal hematopoiesis right now it's the big new thing we've known about clonal hematopoiesis for decades pnh was clonal hematopoiesis right (laughs) Right. just imagine you have clonal hematopoiesis let's say you have someone with a cal r mutation let's say you have someone with i mean you can have Clonal hematopoiesis with even a, without even having a mutation, uh, that 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 can occur, or or one that you know about. Now you get a pig A mutation in it, right? So here's your 40 percent clone, and now you get a pig A mutation in it. Bingo, you got classical PNH, right? Jack two, Calr, whatever. That's that that that. Uh, there's your classical PNH, or like your patient here, you can develop PNH out of aplastic anemia. But you know the fascinating thing is it only comes out of immune-mediated aplastic anemia. Fanconi anemia, dyskeratosis congenita, you know, those, those patients, they don't throw out, yeah, there's rare cases I've described one, uh, but, but that's, that's just true, true, unrelated. But the association between acquired aplastic anemia and PNH is real. As a matter of fact, if you look at adults, 60 to 75% of adults at presentation, just like your patient, will have a small to moderate size PNH clone. And that is immune selection. So um, GPI anchor proteins are, are involved through NK and T cell mechanisms. And I won't go into it right now. It's NKG2D is the predominant uh, pathway. Uh, it makes PNH stem cells less susceptible to the immunologic attack that you have in aplastic anemia. So it's a conditional growth advantage. 
and it's hematology is all about darwinianism i mean the cells who are under immune attack are trying to escape that immune attack the second most common genetic abnormality to come out of aplastic anemia is loss of 6p that's where hla is yeah. about 20 25 percent of patients with acquired aplastic anemia will have 6p loh you won't pick that up on your gene panels so PNH is, is a way of escaping that autoimmune attack, and it gives it a conditional advantage that doesn't exist uh, in, in under normal hematopoietic conditions. So those are two ways that you can get expansion of the PNH clone, escape or already pre-existing clonal dominance with another mutation or another process epigenetic uh, involved causing uh, clonal hematopoiesis. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Botsky. Um, one other question is, that is something I see a lot of trainees struggle with, is how to identify as well as diagnose PNH. I know you did an excellent tutorial, uh, I think a few months ago, about the flow for PNH, what it means, and how to look for it. Can you please uh, walk us through how to identify PNH and diagnose it? Sure. So, I mean, it's really a simple diagnosis right now, and, and it's just a flow assay, and, and different labs use different reagents, and most most use flare in, in conjunction with monoclonal antibodies that recognize other GP anchor proteins. The nice thing about flare is it's a protein that recognizes the anchor itself. So, um, you know... What is, send, what is flare? So... Flare is is uh, derived from Aramonas hydrophila. It's a it's a protoxin that um, causes damage by binding to GPI anchor proteins and oligomerizing and poking a hole in cells, just like complement. And uh, many years ago, we discovered that PNH cells are resistant to this protoxin because its receptor, the GPI anchor protein, isn't there. So. Um, what uh, my colleague Tom Buckley and I did is we, we mutated the protoxin such that uh, it could still bind to the GP anchor protein, but it wouldn't form channels. And then we uh, put on a, a, a fluorescent tag, Alexa fluor, uh, so that it would fluoresce. So it's, it's a protein that binds GP anchor proteins that, that fluoresces, and it's a very useful flow cytometric reagent. Uh, that uh, looks for the absence of GP anchor proteins on the cell surface. All blood cells have, a have GP anchor proteins on their surface. Different blood cells may have different ones, but they all have GP anchor proteins. And this, you know, makes it very simple, a simple reagent on granulocytes and monocytes and stem cells. Uh, the only, the only uh, cell that it won't work on really well uh, are or red cells because the glycocalyx uh, interferes with, with its uh, uh, binding, so you don't get good separation. So we still use CD59 on red cells. Um, do you also send PGA mutation testing along with the flow no. to diagnose? Okay. I don't want to get off too many tangents, but I, I always say it's better to have a functional test than uh the genetic test, unless the genetic test is pathognomonic for it. You know, if you're looking for 
BCRA bowl or, or you know a Jack two you know uh, mutation where it's the same spot every time virtually. Okay, a, a genetic test is fine, but you know a lot of times, especially when you're you know and I'm teasing you guys on these gene panels, but I tease our fellows and junior faculty as well on that because a lot of times you're acting on something and you don't even know if it's functional. Just because there's a variant there, you don't know that it's really a, a, or, or a germline variant. I mean, how many times have you sent off a, 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 a gene panel on, on a patient with a, a TMA looking for uh, atypical HUS and you get something back and you, you read it and it's gobbledygook? You know, probably damaging mutation, uh, cl you know, clinic. How do you know? <laughs> so, so, so having a functional test is, is very important. You know, when you when you look for for uh, short telomeres, what would you rather have a, 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 a gene test or short telomeres by flow fish? Uh, when you send Fanconi anemia, you know, you have all these different pathways. But but if you have chromosomal breakage, it's more important. And it's the same thing in PNH. If you're missing GP anchor proteins, you don't need to send anything else. That's 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 really how you make the diagnosis. The hard part of the diagnosis relates to your case and deciding on whether what you need to treat. Do you need to treat someone because they're either clotting or hemolyzing from missing GP anchor proteins, or do you need to treat someone because they have severe cytopenias due to bone marrow failure? That's the important, that's where the difficulty lies. I wanted to ask, you know, Ashwin asked, how do you diagnose PNH? I want to sort of take one step up and say what, other than obviously aplastic anemia, which we'll talk more about, what makes you suspicious? What about a, what when you hear a case presented to you makes your kind of radar go off for, oh, this might be a case of PNH? Yeah, great question. So uh, basically what you're looking for is a, from the standpoint of hemolysis, you're looking for a Coombs negative hemolytic anemia, okay? So, so patients with a, a Coombs negative hemolytic anemia, that's, I'm, I'm thinking PNH. So it can be obviously other things that do that, uh, but that, that raises my suspicion. Uh, the LDH in, in that uh, is usually, it's intravascular hemolysis. So it's usually really high uh, for, for patients that have, uh, you know, classical PNH, often, you know, in the, in the high hundreds or a thousands. Um, so, so those are the, those are the ones, you know, obviously if, you know, uh, about 25, 30% of patients will give the classic hemoglobinuria. Uh, some of them will have uh, symptoms of smooth muscle dystonias. What's, what that is, is when you have massive intravascular hemolysis, you release free hemoglobin, free hemoglobin scavenges nitric oxide. So PNH patients will often give uh, a history of difficulty swallowing, um, uh, sometimes even liquids, uh, they, 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 they'll say that the food gets stuck. They can't get it, get it down. Males will give a history of uh, intermittent erectile dysfunction when that, when, when that occurs. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of times the patients will complain of abdominal and uh, back pain. And especially if you see these, you know, if, if a patient gives a history of these paroxysms that, you know, occur uh, after a viral infection, things like that, that's been going on for some time. So that's from the hemolysis standpoint. Then there's the patients that can be um, very difficult to, uh, in the sense that people often don't think about it. And that's the clotting phenotype. Uh, 
So some patients will present with more of a clotting phenotype and they don't, the, the incredible thing is a lot of them don't have dramatic hemolysis. Uh, so they'll present with unusual clots. They'll present with Bud Chiari syndrome. They'll present with portal vein thrombosis. Uh, they'll present uh, sometimes with dermal uh, vein thrombosis. They'll, they'll present almost with a skin rash that, that, you know, if you don't biopsy it and uh, find, um, they'll present with uh, central retinal occlusion, you know, just any kind of strange clotting uh, also raises the specter, especially if in this, in the setting of that clotting, you see some spinias, you see some, uh, maybe a mildly elevated LDH. Those are the ones that you really need to be um, uh, on the lookout for. I think one thing you mentioned is about hemolysis. Is it always intravascular hemolysis or there is some evidence of extravascular hemolysis as well? Yeah, so it's, it's yes, it's always intravascular prior to therapy. Uh, when you throw therapy in, then you can see the extravascular. But if you're not opposing C3B uh, from landing on, on a red cell, the conversion from that to the membrane attack complex occurs so fast that you don't even see the extravascular hemolysis. It's, it's, it's pretty much all intravascular. I want to dive a bit more into this sort of overlap of aplastic anemia and PNH. And I wanted to start by asking you, what's the chicken and what's the egg? Yeah, it's a good... So I think, <laughs> I think the initial event is aplastic anemia. It doesn't have to be, though. We talked about someone getting clonal hematopoiesis and then getting a pig A mutation in that clone. So if you've already got hematopoiesis where you have a clone expanded to 50, 60, 70%, and then you get a pig A mutation in that clone, you can get PNH really fast. So the aplastic anemia overlap, the 21-year-old, you know, who probably doesn't have clonal hematopoiesis at the time. Uh, who develops immune-mediated aplastic anemia and has a 2-3% uh, PNH clone, that PNH clone is, is probably an escape mechanism to the autoimmune attack. So in that sense, the, uh, the aplastic anemia is coming first, and then years later, the PNH can evolve, especially if you use immunosuppressive therapy. If you use transplant, you avoid that. And what... Um proportion of PNH patients also have uh, aplastic anemia? Uh, so it's a tough question, in this, uh, but it's a good one. So most patients with PNH have some underlying bone marrow failure. Now, it may not be to the extent that it's clinically relevant. So, so these patients, you know, they may walk around with a white count of 3,100, an ANC of 1,800, you know, it's, it's, you know, maybe a little low, but it's not causing them a problem. Maybe their platelet counts uh, 127,000 instead of, you know, 240. So a classical PNH patient, they, they, they have a small amount of bone marrow failure underneath it, usually, not always. Some of them will have almost stone cold normal counts other than the anemia. 
Some of them actually with the clonal hematopoiesis underneath will have a, a, an elevated platelet count I've even seen sometimes, but usually it's normal to low. And do you check for a PNH clone in every patient with a new diagnosis of aplastic anemia? And if Absolutely. so, how, how does it uh, influence your management of the aplastic anemia if you find a PNH clone? Yeah, that's that's a a really important point. So I, I absolutely test everyone with aplastic anemia for a PNH clone. And um, it, it's very helpful in the diagnosis. Let's take your 66-year-old and, and, you know, with cytopenias and you do a bone marrow, uh, it can be sometimes very hard to, to know what's, what's going on. Uh, is this, I mean, more likely it's going to be an MDS uh, uh, than, than an aplastic anemia. Just for, for incidence of disease. And, and, and the 21 year old, I, I talked about, you know, you, you want to rule out inherited bone marrow failure disorders. I mean, that's what you're thinking about more so than, than MDS. So the reason you send the PNH clone is not so much to make a diagnosis of, of PNH. Uh, it's really to help you understand what the, the, the diagnosis, what the bone marrow failure state is. So in your patient um, who, you know, you, 66-year-old, you wouldn't expect them to have more than maybe a 30% uh, bone marrow cellularity. So, I mean, 5%, yeah, that's pretty low, but say it was 20%, you're like, uh. um, so, uh, but seeing that size of a PNH clone really makes you think that that's immune mediated because of what we talked about, uh, the, the PNH clones is escaping the autoimmunity. And in your 21-year-old who has a small PNH clone, right off the bat that this is not going to be Fanconi anemia. This is not going to be, I mean, sure, you might send those just to be, you know, doubly sure. But, but if you have a, a small PNH clone, you can be pretty darn sure this isn't short telomeres. This isn't uh, Schwachmann diamond. This isn't uh, Fanconi anemia. And, and that's important because if you're taking that person to transplant, uh, it could influence your conditioning regimen, A, and if you were going to give immunosuppressive therapy, you would feel better about it that you weren't treating an inherited bone marrow failure disorder. Absolutely. Um, some recent studies have shown that a PNH clone might predict a good outcome in survival with immunosuppression. Do you factor that at all into your decision-making when you're treating aplastic anemia? No, there's probably a slightly higher chance of response but it doesn't tell you that the response is going to be durable. And the problem with immunosuppressive therapy and aplastic anemia is even with the addition of Altrombopeg right now, you have a less than 50% two-year failure-free survival, which means at two years, your patient either still needs immunosuppression, they've relapsed, uh, or they've gotten some god-awful clonal disease, monosomy seven, you know, coming out. It doesn't really change things a whole lot for me. It, it helps me uh, more in the younger patient uh, and, and in, in a patient like you, you just described, I, I wouldn't give this 66 year old Videza, uh, for example, bone marrow transplant. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, now even with half match donors, has cure rates upwards of 90 to 95%. It is less expensive than immunosuppressive therapy right now, believe it or not. 
uh, a half match bone marrow transplant can be done for less than $200,000. When you add Altrombopag to ATG cyclosporin, and you're keeping it on for six months or more, you're up to $500,000 in one year. And 50% of those patients are ultimately going to go to bone marrow transplant anyhow. So we've really moved away from immunosuppressive therapy, uh, except in the very rare instances where you absolutely can't find a donor. That's unbelievably rare now with uh, haplotransplants. Uh, and the other group that, that I would uh, use immunosuppressive therapy, what I, what I ask myself is, is this patient likely to live 10 years if they didn't have aplastic immune? And if, if the answer is yes, and they have, you know, reasonable organ, organ uh, uh, preservation, uh, I would take that patient straight to bone marrow transplant. And I'll bet you're all, all three of you are surprised that that 66-year-old, if you didn't tell me that there was some god-awful uh, malignancy or, you know, some horrible cardiomyopathy or, or you know, she was on dialysis, I'd take her straight to bone marrow transplant, even from a half-match donor. With no immunosuppression. No immunosuppression. Yeah. That, yeah, that paradigm is going to shift. Keep, keep, keep your eye out on blood. Sure. It's going to be coming out very soon. Yeah. Sure. Sounds good. That. Sure. Um, so next we wanted to touch on thrombosis. So as you know, one of the biggest challenges of managing PNH is the pro-thrombotic tendency, which is a frequent cause of morbidity and mortality. As, and as you alluded to prior to the era of uh, complement inhibitors was one of the major causes of death. So what is the mechanism behind this prothrombotic tendency in PNH? They're asking great questions. That's, that's the focus of our lab now. Complement and the coagulation cascade evolved at the same time. And there's a lot of crosstalk between the two. As a matter of fact, a lot of the enzymes in coagulation and a lot of the uh, enzymes in, in complement are serine proteases. And there's a lot of crosstalk between them. I, I earlier talked about complementopathies one of the cardinal features of, of complementopathies is thrombosis. I mean, you know, you, you think of cold agglutinin disease. These patients, you know, clot like crazy. You talk about PNH, you know, leading cause of death, thrombosis. Talk about antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, CAPS. You know, they, they clot. Atypical H, HUS is, is microvascular thrombosis. I mean, so, so that is a cardinal feature of these disorders. So, so how, how is it? that the, the complement is, is causing uh, the thrombosis. And a lot of people are studying that, including our group, and I don't think anyone sufficiently answered it yet. But I can tell you that we hardly see clotting anymore <laughs> uh, in PNH, and we don't even keep them on, even the ones that present with the clotting phenotype, we don't even keep them on anticoagulation anymore after we've treated their clot and treated their PNH with a complement inhibitor, we 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 will will remove the the anticoagulation after three to six months if they're well controlled. I think one probably follow up question I wanted to ask about thrombosis: Is there anything particular in the flow you're looking to see that these are the patients who are at highest risk of thrombosis? Yeah. No. Yeah. So so um, sure. One of the things. There's a lot of people put an emphasis on clone size uh, for treating PNH. And, I, and I, 
I don't with the exception of the clotting. So uh, just because someone has a large clone size doesn't mean you need to jump in and treat them right away because some, you know, there are some patients uh, that have a relatively large clone size that have their relatively asymptomatic they're they're they may have a little hemolysis but it's not dramatic they're they're not having any clots you, you you don't need to jump in and treat them uh right away just because they have a relatively large clone size and the same thing with the aplastic anemia pnh patient this is a common mistake people will look at that 50 60 percent pnh clone and say ah this is pnh not aplastic anemia and they'll treat the the PNH, and yeah, you, you'll get that 600 LDH down, uh, but you're not going to stop the transfusions, um, and and you're not going to you know stop the 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 you know the the neutropenia, um, but but clotting is important. So um, before the institution of complement inhibitors, uh, there was no question that the the patients with PNH clones over 50% had a greater risk of thrombosis than patients that, that you know, 5, 10, 20, even 30% uh, PNH clone. Once a complement inhibitor is on, that just goes out. It doesn't even matter uh, because it, they're, they're all equalized. The other thing that you should do in the workup, in addition to uh, the LDH and, and the retic count and, and uh uh, is I always send a D-dimer uh, very early on in, in diagnosis, and and if that D-dimer is up, they're having they're probably having some some thrombosis. Uh, a misconception about PNH is that they're always going to develop these large vessel clots, like in the in you know Budkiari. Oh, it's got to be a, a hepatic vein thrombus. It's a big clot right in the. It's it's usually microvascular actually. Uh, just like you see in atypical HUS and HELP syndrome and CAPS um, and, or, you know, veno-occlusive disease, you know, gives you a Budd-Chiari syndrome, but it's usually not a big, uh, you know, clot uh, there. So, so it can be small vessel thrombosis. So a D-dimer is something I also send and pay a lot of attention to. Right. So is it fair to say that uh, there's no role of prophylactic anticoagulation for a patient with PNH? You know, a blanket statement like no role, probably not, but but very little to no role. Um, the anticoagulation doesn't really work. So you're treating yourself if you're treating a patient, you know, with and uh, saying, oh, I'm going to put them on uh, prophylactic uh, anticoagulation. It doesn't work. Yeah. And, and, you also got to remember that a lot of these patients have thrombocytopenia. So, so putting them on anticoagulation is not always that safe. I think this is a nice segue to um, the next part of our discussion, which is the anti-complement therapy. So let's say, for example, this is a patient, we have the patient with classical PNH, not the aplastic anemia and PNH overlap, um, which I presented earlier. How do you make a decision about treatment of a classical PNH patient who is having hemolysis with severe anemia and symptoms secondary to that. And I know right now we have uh, three FDA approved medications for that. And how do you decide which medication and what how these medications differ? Yeah, so let's talk about how do I decide therapy? So you gotta ask yourself, is the patient symptomatic? <laughs> 
first of all. And, and, and that's not as easy a question as you, you know, I, I just recently had a, a, a young guy in his twenties, um, pretty well-preserved counts. His hemoglobin was running in the high tens, low 11s, uh, good, good platelet count, good neutrophil count. Uh, LDH was in six, 700,000, uh, six to 700 range. I really had to pull out of him that he was having, uh, you know, some, some symptoms of dyspnea and exertion in it, but you, you know, then you got to ask yourself, well, are those symptoms worth getting an IV infusion and having to come in on, you know, and get, so, so, so you don't have to rush in a patient like that. If they tell you, Hey, you know, I'm going to the gym, I'm going to work. I, I, I feel fine. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, my life is great. You don't need to, to, to jump in uh, there unless there, you know, someone, you know, ha has started having clotting or something like that. Or if I saw a D dimer and an LDH that's progressively climbing and a D dimer that's progressively climbing, I would tell the patient, you know, I think we should start even, I, I realize you're not having tons of symptoms right now, but that, that's, that worries me. And, and uh, so I've done that sometimes. And, and usually when you do that, uh, the patient says, Oh, I feel so, you know, so much better. I, I didn't realize I was having, cause it's, it can be, it's, but, but that's a rare patient. Most of them are quite symptomatic. Most of them will tell you that they're, they have extreme fatigue. They aren't able to do what they used to do. They can't work out anymore. They're, they, they get home from work and they're completely washed out and they have to go to sleep. I mean, that makes it easy uh, if they're having a lot of symptoms that way. But realize that you're treating, you're treating the intravascular hemolysis. That's what you need to treat. Uh, and uh, so, so if they are anemic uh, and their hemoglobin's 8.9 and their retic count's 2, you're not going to have a big impact from a complement inhibitor. That's bone marrow failure under there or some other cause of anemia. Maybe they're iron deficient. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they have B12 deficiency. Maybe they have some other, you know, process going on. So that's what you need to think about. As far as which ones, uh, my go-to drug as of today is ravalizumab. Um, uh, that's a C5 inhibitor blocks terminal complement. Um, it is the nice thing about that medication is after the first two doses, it's given uh, every two months. So a patient only has to get six infusions a year. Um, and that is really um, a quite an effective drug that's, that's tough to beat. Um, there is another drug uh, that's approved called Pegcetacoplan that is a uh, C3 inhibitor. It's a pegylated peptide. The problem with that drug is it's very cumbersome to administer to patients. It has to be given by a subcutaneous infusion. So the patient has to be hooked to a pump um, and put two needles in the abdomen or in the leg, and it's given over uh, 30 minutes that, through infusion. The drug has to be refrigerated. So, you know, travel is you know, not the greatest, uh, with that. And, and a lot of the patients, not a lot, but several of the patients will need it more than twice a week. Uh, some need it every other day. Some need it almost daily. So I reserve that for patients that are having 
and I'm coming back to the extravascular hemolysis that you brought up. Um, uh, the extravascular hemolysis, and you probably next question is explain that. So <laughs> the, the way it's, it's easier to do this with a figure, but um, if you think of uh, CD59 being at the bottom of your computer screen and uh, the C5 inhibitor being in the middle of your computer screen and CD55 being at the top of your computer screen, that visual might, might help. So uh, what C5 inhibitors do is compensate for the CD59 deficiency, but because CD55, the other complement regulator, is upstream of C5, you can uh, the cells get decorated with fragments from the uh, C3, and they get opsonized by the liver and spleen. Uh, so so you, then you can get this extravascular hemolysis. Almost everyone on a C5 inhibitor will have some extravascular hemolysis. And that's why when you put them on these drugs, uh, they're, um, they still have an elevated retic count. They still remain uh, anemic. But most of the patients will become transfusion independent. And usually that anemia is relatively mild where they're either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Uh, what you do stop with C5 inhibitors is the clotting, and that's the leading cause of death from this disease. So when you put someone on a C5 inhibitor, if they're running, let's say your 66-year-old had classical PNH, uh, she's retired, she maybe plays golf once a week and, and you know, goes out with her friends and goes out to lunch and get, you know, is involved in some uh, charities, whatever, volunteering, says, I can do all those things. I feel great now. Leave her alone. Uh, even if her hemoglobin is 10.9, uh, she's not having trouble with the dailies of active life. Um, on the other hand, if, if she was 8.3 and is spending a lot of time in bed and fatigued and, and uh, unable to do the things that she was uh, doing before and has a high retic count, but a normal or you know barely elevated LDH and is having lots of extravascular hemolysis, that's the type of patient I may offer something like PEG-C-to-Coplan uh, that can actually address both the CD55 and the CD59 I would have that discussion with her about, you know, she willing to do these infusions, things like that. The good news is, maybe not for that company, uh, but but uh, I think that drug's going to go away in the sense that it's just too cumbersome for patients uh, to use on a regular basis. And there's oral complement inhibitors that are coming out that are also upstream that are probably going to take that option away. Yeah. One other thing is when you are explaining um, these complement inhibitors to the patient, what are some of the potential side effects um, as well as, I think the biggest thing we are worried about the infection risk. Yeah, so this is targeted therapy, not, <laughs> <laughs> not what we do in some of our malignancies <laughs> to call that targeted using the term loosely. So when, when a real targeted therapy addresses the pathway that's causing the disease 
and has predictable side effects. You don't develop GI failure, pulmonary failure, heart failure, your ear falls off or something. I mean, you know, when you block complement, especially terminal complement, there's really only one side effect. And, and that is an increased risk to NICERIAL infection. And that's why these patients need to be, A, vaccinated, and younger patients, I keep on uh, penicillin prophylaxis because they're the ones that are most uh, susceptible to it. So that's the major uh, side effect uh, that, that you have from these. There's really not much in the, else in the way of infectious risk. There's possibly some with maybe some fungal infection. I, have just, I just haven't seen that. Um, and, uh, but the main risk is nice steering. One other question is, um, which something I've seen some of the physicians describe about as, especially for a patient with aplastic anemia and PNH clone, um, if you are treating their aplastic anemia with immunosuppression therapy and they're getting their horse ATG, it can trigger massive hemolysis from the PNH clone. Is, yep. it, is it something you discuss with the patient or how do you mitigate this? Yeah. So, so I mean, your patient uh, had a hemoglobin of 6.1 and, um, you know, so you're probably transfusing that your patient. And when you transfuse that patient, the size of the PNH clone is going to be so small that they're not really going to get significant hemolysis uh, from that. So it's usually not an issue. Um there are some patients uh, that have clotting prior to their immunosuppressive therapy or their bone marrow transplant that I do overlap the drugs. Um, but if they're if they're having clotting um, and they have you know bad bone marrow failure, they they really need more definitive therapy than immunosuppressive therapy. Uh, it, it's usually not a, an issue if. Um, but, but there are some patients that have had severe aplastic anemia with clones like uh, you, you presented in your case that, that are actually having uh, some, some small vessel uh, thrombosis causing pain or other uh, manifestations. And I will put them on eculizumab. That's the shorter acting C5 inhibitor because I'm not going to be, uh, there's no advantage of Doing, doing the long-acting one, and I'll just give it until they get started with their conditioning regimen. And once their uh, the conditioning regimen started, you can pull it off. Well, we can't help but ask you then how who who um, gets an, an alginate transplant. Which of your patients? How do you decide when and which patients to refer for transplant? Yeah, so I just got a call from your neighbor in New Zealand <laughs> about a young patient with TNH and thrombosis and very life-threatening thrombosis. And, and as you're aware, uh, there's no complement inhibitors available in New Zealand right now, uh, other than on clinical trials. So that's a patient that should go to bone marrow transplant. But in countries where complement inhibitors are available, they're so effective um, that we, we don't do bone marrow transplant uh, in these patients anymore, even though transplant-related mortality is now down for bone marrow failure states, down to, I quote, patients less than 2 to 3%. Um, that's higher than effectively zero, you know, if you're talking about a classical PNH patient. 
Now, the patient you presented, I view as aplastic anemia. That patient needs a transplant. Now, again, I wouldn't quibble at this point if someone wanted to say, hey, we're going to go with immunosuppressive therapy, and if we get a good response, fine. But um, I think we're, 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 um, we're really moving away from the era of immunosuppressive therapy. The, the, um, at 10 years, the failure-free survival is down to 25 to 30%. So, and that's why I use that, ask myself that 10 year question. So if you have a 45 year old or a 50 year old, I mean, are, are you really going to be happy, you know, telling them in, in 10 years, there's a 25% chance that, you know, you're going to, there's only a 25% chance you're going to be off therapy and have relatively normal counts, or do you want to take a therapy right now that has a better than 90, 95% chance of, of getting, getting rid of that. And, you know, a lot of these patients uh, are going to need a transplant anyhow. So transplants very rare for a classical PNH. One other thing is, is there any risk of transformation of PNH to MDS, AML? There is any clonal uh, disorder because it's small and, and I, you know, I, I, it, there, there are, you know, again, it's it's mainly probably coming from the bone marrow failure. So patients who have immune-mediated aplastic anemia and don't have a PNH clone have a 15 to 20% chance of developing MDS in 10 years. And, and the most common is monosomy 7. So, so if you have a patient with aplastic anemia and a PNH clone, yeah, they have a chance of, of going on to, to developing MDS. And again, that's why we are moving transplant up front. Um, that, PNA, that MDS can be inside or outside of the PNH clone. So, so again, I think it's more from uh, the underlying bone marrow failure. There is a risk from the underlying disease, but but it's it's pretty small, especially in a classical PNH patient. Finally, um, yeah, I think you briefly mentioned about you know, factor B inhibitors as well as factor D inhibitors. Do you think that these inhibitors will replace the C5 and C3 inhibitors completely in the future? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, no, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm scared of these drugs. I'm excited for these drugs, but I'm scared of these drugs. And, and, and I'll, t I'll explain what I mean. And I'm, you know, we were involved in clinical trials and we actually helped do the preclinical development for the factor D inhibitor. Uh, they're very effective. I'm worried that they're going to be used inappropriately. And, you know, just, I mean, you've all seen, you know, the patient with, uh, uh, you know, with, with a DVT or a PE, uh, who's either non-compliant or, you know, is a huge fall risk. And, and you know, it's frustrating when you have someone uh, put them on, again, treating themselves, not the patient, uh, because they just want to put them on a DOAC and get them out of the hospital. But not everyone's a good candidate for a DOAC, uh, especially if they're non-compliant, because then they come back in with a clot. No, oh, they're a DOAC. But, well, they are a DOAC failure, not from the drug failure, but because you put a patient that's non-compliant on it. Uh, so, what worries me about these very short half-life drugs is what happens when you take someone 
who has a clotting phenotype, for example, and you put them on a factor B or a factor D inhibitor that has, you know, has to be taken twice a day. And now they get a stomach flu. They just went on a, you know, cruise to the Caribbean. They came back, they got a bad neurovirus or rotavirus. They're throwing up. They can't keep anything down. Complement amplifies uh, and, and they miss their drugs. They're going to have massive, massive hemolysis and probably clot. And, and so I, those, you know, when the, the nice thing about ravalizumab, it's not a perfect drug. Uh, in the sense that they still have some extravascular hemolysis, but most patients don't have much of that extravascular hemolysis and have good uh, quality of life. Their clotting risk goes down to almost an age match control. It's, you, you're going to have to select these patients very carefully. The other important point here is C3 and factor B are acute phase reactants. So, uh, the level of the drug that is controlling complement and preventing hemolysis and potentially thrombosis at steady state may not be the same as when you have the flu or, or you know, you develop, you know, mono or, or you know, have a bad cellulitis or, or, or need a surgery. So, so, Yes, I think these drugs will start to become used up front. I think I will start to use these drugs up front when they become uh, available. And I think both of them will be available within the next year. Uh, Danicopan uh, will likely be approved as an add-on to C5 uh, inhibition. Uh, Iptocopan, the factor B inhibitor, will likely be approved as a standalone drug. I think the patients that are the best candidates for this will be patients with classical PNH whose manifestations are primarily hemolysis. Um, I think patients who are on C5 inhibitors who are having a lot of extravascular hemolysis uh, could be switched to these drugs. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll see a lot of that. I'd like to see a little more data on clotting uh, before I switch the clotting phenotype on there, I, I suspect it'll be fine, but you know, it, it, when they're when they're blocked, they're blocked. They'll be okay, but when they're breaking through, is what 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 scares me. Um, so so I I still think we're going to have to learn a lot about these and how to use them and using them in the right patients. But yes, I think they will encroach upon uh, ravalizumab. I plan unless that drug. Um, can be formulated in a different way, I'm worried about. Thanks a lot, Dr. Brodsky, for your time. I know this was excellent discussion, and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate of all the interesting uh, clinical tidbits you, you uh, alluded in this episode. And uh, we look forward to having you again on our podcast in the future. That'd uh, be great. You guys do uh, ask all the right <laughs> questions. and. Thank you.